Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. Some audio in this episode may be disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. All your words of manipulation don't convince me one bit. You're goddamn liar. You can't get away from the fucking ship. That's why I'd like to die. You can't get away from the fucking shit. You carry it with you, no matter how much you try to see. No matter how much of an example you live. No matter how much you burn your life out, night after day, day after night, lay up in a stroke. God damn it. It hurts. I wish I could try to be healthier. It hurts that you, even I didn't have to talk to you about this goddamn miserable shit. God damn it, pouring out my soul to try to educate people like this. And you people still put this shit on me. No sooner than there's one meeting answers, another one begins. Welcome to episode four of The Truth About True Crime, a podcast series looking at some of the most shocking crimes of our lifetimes, but through a whole new lens. I'm Amanda Knox, your host. Last time, we heard about how Jones used theatrics to amass his following and generate both fear and loyalty among his congregation. In this episode, we'll discuss Jim Jones' desperate need to control the narrative of himself and People's Temple, while struggling with his own self-destructive behavior. As Jones's reputation and his power grew, he's deteriorating. He felt the world closing in on him. The paranoia, the drug use. Investigations and people. What greater act of devotion can followers show than being willing to die at the command of the leader? And now he has proof that they would. Here with me today via Skype, we have Jeff Gwynn, author of The Road to Jonestown, and also Shan Nicholson, director of the docuseries Jonestown Terror in the Jungle. So I know that I have two storytellers in the room with me, and I wanted to talk to you guys about Jim Jones, the storyteller. What was the narrative that he was building about himself and was that narrative true? According to Jones's official story, he was the son of an alcoholic World War I veteran who badly beat him and his mother, that he was an outcast in his small hometown of Lynn, that because he was so committed to civil rights, even as a child, he was shunned by his peers. And none of that was true. Would you say that Jones was constructing his own narrative and that narrative was grounded in an ideology of his own greatness? Well, 
part of that was because his mother believed in predestination and in reincarnation. And from the time Jimmy is toddling, she's telling him that he was born to be the greatest man on earth. That will have an effect on him. Actually, I'm quite a very humble essence of being. I, I don't like to discuss my own worth, but I have to tell you that the universe would not run without me. So to a certain extent, you have to construct your own story and to a greater extent, you have to convince yourself that whatever you're doing is really for the best. Maybe he was the type of leader, and we certainly know of some, who think whatever I want to believe is true must be true. Doing something wrong isn't wrong if it's done towards achieving something that's greater and right. And we, we see that in politics all the time, but, but Jones was masterful at it. And I know that Shan and all the research he's done and all the people he's interviewed probably has a pretty good impression of maybe Jones wasn't actually almost as good at convincing himself that he was doing what you have to do to keep your followers. Hmm. What do you think, Shan? When I think of Jones and all of the lies and the complicated web that he wove, I mean, it feels like a plate spinner that at any minute it's all going to come crashing down, but he somehow has to keep the ruse going. You know, in every stage of his career and every stage of his development, it gets crazier and crazier. Now you're healing people of cancer and not just pulling casts off of people. It's like Jim Jones Jr. says it where he compared his father to uh, Evil Knievel. It's like, well, you can't just jump over one car. You know, you, now you have to jump over four cars or five cars, and it's just that never-ending sort of cycle of trying to outdo yourself with the bigger lie. So there's no way an intellectual can deal with me because you can't explain me. I don't attempt to explain me. I just say, when your car doesn't run, try me. You may not believe, but I'll tell you there was never a miracle done in the world lest I did. So... We have this guy, and the more power he gets, the more he seems like he's imploding. Jeff, you were talking last episode about Jim Jones's drug use and his missteps. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Where did he get the drugs? So Jones had among his followers several nurses who work on staff at a local hospital. And these are days before computerization could make it possible to know every last pill that you have in storage. And they could bring him things, and they did. What did he need drugs for? Well, the pressure is incredible. I mean, he's got to be a miracle worker. He's got to be a social worker. He's got to be able to convince skeptical government officials that, hey, this hybrid church is worth embracing. So he turned to drugs amphetamines to give him energy to get through the day, tranquilizers to get to sleep. You need more drugs, particularly the amphetamines, build an increasing sense of paranoia. By the end, he would be mostly incoherent, and a couple key followers would try to interpret what they thought Jim wanted them to do. So all these pressures his growing power, his responsibilities, his drug use. 
How did all of these things come to the surface of his life? The best example, when he's starting to use the drugs, uh, his eyes get red and watery. That's why, from about the middle of his ministry, every time you see a film clip or a picture of Jim Jones, he's wearing dark glasses, even in public. And what he would say when someone said, Jim, why have you got those glasses on? Is he would say with a straight face, the power of God is so strong in me. If I took off these glasses right now and you looked into my eyes, you would be burned up. He's deteriorating in, in terms of the dark side of him dominating the better nature. I want you to get everything taped. I'm not even taking it from you, but I'm going to take your life. Your life's going to be gone in June. You're going to be gone. And I won't even move my finger. Not one of my people will move their finger. I'm just going to breathe on you in a mirror and you'll be finished. Because I have a picture of you in my mind, and my mind's just not like any mind you've ever seen. And so I'm going to outpicture on you, and I'm going to outpicture on you and reverse the energy. You're in trouble, brother. I'm going to let you take your tape because I want them to hear it. I want you to take it to your investigating laboratory, and I want those to listen, and I want them to hear the ring of sincerity in my voice. I want them to know what I'm saying. I am God. I'm the only God there is. As he grows in power and in paranoia, then he needs to see over and over again signs that his followers really do love him, that you need to prove that you really do care for me, that you completely believe in me. He doesn't want to let that slip ever. There was a group in People's Temple called the Planning Commission. And these were the members who were supposed to give guidance to him. Now, they were basically a rubber stamp committee. And on one particular night in San Francisco, Jones gathers the group together. There's maybe 50, 60 people. And he says he's got a special treat for them. People's Temple owned some farming property in California. And on one of these properties, grapes were grown. And Jones announces that what we've got here is, is a keg of wine from up in our farm. And even though in People's Temple, you weren't supposed to drink because you know alcohol is unnecessary, just for a change isn't a treat, everybody's gonna get to have a cup of wine. And so they all have the wine and Jones is leading the toast and they all you know, they drink the wine down. As soon as they've drunk it, Jones informs them that it was poisoned. You're all gonna die within 45 minutes. And you should be willing to die calmly as good socialists will. And one woman screams and jumps up to run away. A man pulls out a gun, fires a shot, she falls over, apparently dead. And Jones announces, now all the rest of you sit around the table and let's see you die with dignity. And so they sit and they start talking and Jones doesn't hear them say anything disrespectful of him. Instead, they're talking about the things they've accomplished. Then a few start saying, oh, I can feel the poison start to work. I can feel it in my legs. That's when Jones grandly announces there never was any poison. The woman who was supposedly dead gets up off the floor. The man who was shot or used a blank, they were both in on it. And Jones said now they had all proven they were true followers. And it was at this point you realize these folks were in it so deep that out of that group, 
You would think at least a couple of them would have charged Jones with the intention of bashing his skull in. Nobody does. It's an honorable thing why Jim trusted us enough to do this, to test us in this way. And it seems like a one of, and it will for about three more years, and uh, then we're gonna see it happen again. But Jones is planting the seeds for what's gonna come later. What greater act of devotion can followers show than being willing to die at the command of the leader? And now he has proof that they would. Cannot be denied, for you are perfection personified. You're no longer a vision, no longer a dream. You're real, real. I thank you. So Jim Jones was subjecting his followers to some really abusive theatrics, and I think this is where so many people find it difficult to empathize with his followers because it seems like it's so obvious that he's a maniacal, crazy person. But I wonder if there's something to how his followers were invested in this great project that they couldn't easily walk away from. Does that resonate with you? What do you think, Shan? You sure talked to a lot of the folks. Yeah, it didn't seem like there was too much room for discussion about things. It was very my way or the highway with Jim Jones. I grew up in a neighborhood where there's a, a lot of prostitution. And by no means, I hope I don't, I'm not trying to compare People's Temple members to prostitutes or whatever, but there's the pimp mentality where you're using humiliation to break somebody down, to then have them sort of follow you to the ends of, and I know this is a terrible analogy or whatever, but I saw this time and time again, where it's like, why don't you just walk away? Why don't you just, just get out of there? And and it gets to a point where it's a total, you're giving all of yourself over to this person. There's no reserve for yourself. It's completely one-sided dedication. So there's no room for, for dissent. There's no room for discussion. There's no room for any sort of a rational thought that goes around some of these things that, that were less than righteous. So I think, you know, Jim had a masterful way of, of controlling people. What do you think, Jeff? The quality of the people Jim Jones attracted is astonishing and has been to me. We're talking about good, intelligent, capable people. He wasn't just suckering in idiots. You realize that Jones had something extraordinary. He starts for the storefront church in the ghettos of Indianapolis. And I think you heard Ron Haldeman say he had 10 people. Ten years later, he's out in San Francisco, hundreds of thousands of followers around the country. And everybody from the governor of California, Jerry Brown, coming to temple services and wanting to be good friends with Jim Jones, to Angela Davis, one of the great revolutionaries. Jim Jones was extraordinary. Unfortunately, his extraordinary ability to do good was overpowered by his even more extraordinary ability to be not only self-destructive, but like all demagogues, eventually they're going to bring their followers down with them. It's inevitable. Jim Jones had this extraordinary ability to control and coerce his followers. 
and he did so in some really dark ways. I know there was even a lot of sexual abuse going on. Can we talk about that? So one of the most inevitable things in any situation where there is a hugely dominant male leader who is supposed to know better and everyone must kowtow to whatever he does is that this leader will also want to sexually dominate followers. In Jones's case, it was double because he, he was bisexual, which certainly was one of the reasons for his lifelong insecurities. And so he began to pick off first young women and then eventually even some men within his following. Most of those who were chosen by him felt honored. Father needs me for this. And he would tell those who would be reluctant that he needed to have sex with them to take away some of their pride that was, that was simply insufferable and unacceptable. In a few cases, and I've talked to women who have been with Jones, it essentially amounted to rape, but there's no sense saying anything about it because who's going to believe a girl over father? That just wouldn't happen. Why don't you shout like you grunted when you got fucked one time? That's it, please. Don't hold these feminine positions. I don't agree with you either. Please don't get no idea. But surely to Christ, sometime or another, when you were involved in some kind of sexual shit, you made more noise than that. It's interesting how he systematically humiliates others. And even more fascinating, like, he calls that humiliation a grace. Like, he's doing it for the people. Like, they need his sexual energy. They need his body to be on their body. Well, the, the other thing, too, he's rarely challenged, but once he was, in, in a pretty major way. So, Grace Stone is the wife of Jones's attorney, Tim Stone who knows all the secrets of the church, all the ways things are done, you know, upstanding and not so upstanding. And Jones's ego is such that he even thinks he can remind Tim Stone of his place by picking off Tim Stone's wife. I mean, that's the type of thing an egomaniac like Jones is gonna do. I'm everybody's master. There was a baby born and Jones ordered Grace to have an abortion. He was not going to have illegitimate children. A couple weeks after the birth, Tim Stone gives an affidavit to People's Temple identifying Jim Jones as the father. Grace flees without her child, thinking that this is at least a situation where I can come back. She knew the child would be well cared for. Her husband, Tim Stone, soon to be ex-husband, also leaves the temple. And they gang up, the two of them, to actually try to legally force Jones to give up the baby. If a couple people not only get away, but they do it aggressively and come back to try to sue Jim Jones or in any way denigrate the temple, that's the kind of thing that cannot be tolerated. How many false reports have I had on me? People I've healed and got out of jail, saved their goddamn life, healed them of cancer, and a son of a bitch is listen to me, Willie. How many false reports have been told on father? Millions, Dad. So why was Grace's defection such a threat to people's temple and to Jones's own narrative about himself? Jim Jones, for most of his, and we won't even call them affairs because they weren't, shall we say, sexual dalliances, were kept secret from everybody else. 
But John Victor Stone, this little baby, and if you look at the pictures of him, he didn't live that long for obvious reasons. A dead image of Jim Jones. So this is a woman that Jim Jones has taken, a child he has sired. And this woman dares to leave. I mean, talk about the double insult. This becomes a fairly open secret in people's temple. Anytime a person is doing the kinds of things Jim Jones was, no matter how much control he tries to have, if there's thousands of people watching, hundreds intimately affected, somebody's gonna be able to get away and start telling the story. And it's a ripple effect. It happens with every demagogue, whether it's a church or it's a, an administration and a government. One person gets away and tells a story and it, oh, well, that's not true. We've got 10,000 people who will deny it. Then there's another one. Then there's another one and it builds up until finally someone comes out and does something. And that's when the dam starts to crack. Grace's defection, I think, was a, was a major part of that. The newspapers are owned by big business. They're owned by the capitalists that have kept the blacks down. They're the very ones that used to stir up the lynch mobs. The newspapers are controlled by wealth. There's only one in every city, and they're always controlled by big money. So you can't expect them to be friendly to us. They're, going to just, they're just having a little rest. They'll take after us again. I wonder, like, what courage did it take for Grace Stone not only to get away, but speak out, especially as a woman and a woman who had a child out of wedlock? What did that mean for Jones's ability to control his own flock in the aftermath of that? What Grace did is really courageous. It was very, very hard to leave the church, particularly if you're a woman. Grace was one of a few dozen former members who had managed to get away and stayed in touch with each other and became sort of an informal organization. You know, these terrible things are going on. Jones had managed to get pretty cuddly with both major San Francisco newspapers. And when reporters at those papers would suggest to their editors that, you know, I think there's something going on with People's Temple, a story could be written. Jones was buddies with publishers and editors-in-chief and metro editors, and the stories wouldn't happen. But an outside magazine began doing an investigative piece, and seven, I believe, former People's Temple members, including Grace, agreed to go on the record about everything from Jones's womanizing and drug use to people being forced to give up all their possessions to join the church, to the physical beatings that were handed out during services to members that one way or another had transgressed in Jones's opinion. It was all pretty horrible stuff. They were brave enough not just to be sources. They allowed their names to be used and their pictures. And when that happened, the noose started to close on Jim Jones. And that's what ultimately took away a lot of his famous friends who suddenly didn't want to be associated with the church at all, from the governor to uh, the movie stars. But Grace was one of the catalysts for that. I think she would agree she wasn't the only one, but she, she was a major one. So is that why Jim Jones went to Guyana? To escape this mounting pressure and all the negative press? to get a fresh start? I don't think it was ever Jones's plan to stay in Jonestown forever. 
when uh, these stories came out, all these famous friends were deserting him. There were more stories apparently coming. He wanted to get away. I mean, he truly believed it would blow over. And so he retreats to Jonestown to sit it out. And when everything dies down back in California, he'll come back. But it didn't turn out that way. I'd like to make a threat of revolutionary suicide and uh, tell... Make a threat, maybe. You better be sure. As the old saying is, don't point again unless you mean to fire the fucker. To my guests, Jeff and Shan, thank you so much for taking your time to be here with me. Thank you to everyone else for listening. And make sure to tune in to the next episode to hear about what life was really like in Jonestown and the events that led to that horrific day. In the good times, you could see the real joy in their face. They were building something out of nothing. And, and it was an incredible feat. They can't get away, they can't rest, and soon you're so exhausted, you can hardly think, which is exactly what Jim Jones wants. I got a hell of a lot of weapons to fight. I got my claws, I got compasses, I got guns, I got dynamite, I got a hell of a lot to fight. I'll fight, I'll fight, I'll Find the truth about true crime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.